0: Welcome to episode seven of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Steve and I'm here with co-host Ben. Hello, Ben.
1: Hey there, Steve.
0: Our guest for this episode is Andy McLeod, a man who has spent the last 30-odd years immersed in the grassroots music scene in London. He's been a promoter, a manager, set up his own label, Pointy Records, and continues to support bands and venues through his media company, Fandango, amongst other things. Ben, you've known Andy for a long time. How was it? interviewing him for the podcast
1: um it was it was hugely enjoyable mostly because he was he's an effortless raconteur isn't he we kind of you know just set the set the show in motion with a question and off he went and ran with it um yeah so it was great to hear him talking he's such a such a gem of a man and um uh, and also just to kind of get a reveal from someone that you've known for such a long time, and hear a story about a whole other side of their life that I, you know, I had a vague notion of Andy having been a musician, though it came a long time before I knew him. Um, but yeah, didn't know the story behind that, and it was lovely to hear that
0: come out. It was, and uh, the as Andy says himself in the episode, the timing of us speaking with him and him coming on the podcast couldn't have been better because he's come to the end of writing a memoir of his time in his band the pointy birds uh and that it, they were a band who were managed by ricky gervais and he as, as he says in sort of the blurb for the book it was the only band where they the band didn't make it but their manager really did <laughs> we've read the first three chapters of the book and it's it's brilliant isn't it
1: it's it's fantastic it's got a, a just a lovely narrative to it you know and uh, the voices that um andy's um used within that narrative um really bring the story um to life don't they it really is very evocative of that time that both of us had a kind of awareness of about being around that scene um and it, yeah it's uh, it's pinpoint it's on the money
0: i think it's you know it's it's a it's a period of history music history that's really important and really rich and uh significant um and he was there at the at the at the heart of it all um desperately trying to break into it but at the same time contributing in a really interesting and important way
1: yeah and i think one of the things that's going kind to of come out of this episode for people it certainly reinforced it for me is that we really need people like andy you know um, it's mm. as you said earlier he's someone that's given a lifetime of commitment to promoting music and musicians that's born out of a genuine passion and love of the music that people have been making. Um, And the way that he talks about that unique set of venues in North London with the same level of passion, you know, um, being a musician and then being a promoter and then taking bands forwards as a label manager all out of that, you know, that first kind of jumping off point.
0: And it harks back to that time, doesn't it? It does. And he still, to this day, has the that spark of enthusiasm that's undiminished from those, you know, those early kind of musical explorations and experiences. He still has that same creative spark and is so passionate and uh, enthusiastic about it. I mean, he says so himself. It feels like it's yeah, you that know, it, it, this is just the beginning for him, which I really love. I really love that, and that's sort of borne out in in all the other things that he's done. I mean, he's we didn't really talk about his podcast Golden Ears, which is again kind of rooted in that whole uh, grass a story of grassroots music, um, albeit you know a sort of comedy um, story told in a podcast, which is brilliant, um, and his children's book um and his memoir and and also now using the experience that he's had um in all those different sort of guises to um support other people offering advice and uh, and guidance and support through the the fandango school and and then more projects coming down the pipe now with the with his um with radio fandango so it's i mean it's just hugely impress- impressive as you say someone dedicated
1: it is i mean andy's been you know i suppose andy has been involved in the you know inverted commas the music industry for for a long time but um you know i i really hate the term industry you know cuz um, it often kind of invokes the the idea of people that distill music down to a, a commodity that can only be bought or sold and we know that that's that's not the truth of what music is really about and and when you listen to andy talk about what he's done and when you consider all the things that you were just describing the way that he's still supporting grassroots music and young musicians that are coming up and lending them his ear and his experience it's um it shows where where it should really come from i think
0: absolutely okay so this is our interview with andy mcleod on episode seven of songs
2: from a padded Metal. My name's Andy McLeod, and the song we're going to hear is a song called Ropes, which is... Um, it was recorded... I reckon it was recorded in 1995. No, let me think. Or 96. Oh, I should know this. Or 94. Mid-90s. It's a <laughs> mid-90s undiscovered classic. And it's the song that um, my I, I recorded with my brother, and we eventually... We went, that's... We've done it. We got there. We've climbed the mountain. That's exactly what we wanted to sound like and then we split up and uh so it kind of and then and then it kind of got shoved in a box somewhere and um I lo- you know I, I think we've all moved on I moved into actually promoting bands and my career as being in a band is kind of over and I think also you sort of feel like a bit um you don't want to revisit it you feel a bit sad about it it's like I, I'm going to put that away I, I'm a different person now and, and that was that. And then literally about maybe a month or two months ago, I, I I emailed Dave and I said, you don't have a copy of that song, Ropes, do you? I've just not heard it since then. And I got lots of other demos that I probably, you know, listen to now and again. Because we had two bands, you see. We had this band, The Pointy Birds. And, uh, you know, we always talk about that, that band and, you know, the demos, do the rounds and all that. And then this was like a band that followed it that really was, my brother and me, The Pointy Birds was a kind of joke, joke band what well, in a sense we, we were as much about comedy as music we We're a bit silly um and we were learning how to write songs the songs weren't you know it was more about the live experience and the songs were maybe not as good but then when when that came to an end uh, dave and me hunkered down in camden and we just wrote song after song after song and we kind of learned what we were doing and we got another band together and and um you know Toured all the salubrious toilet venues of Camden, and um and right towards the end, you know, we we I think each de- demo we did, we got better. We'd send it out. We never really got much interest, but there was this one session we did, and we actually used a drum machine, and it was just the two of us, and it was also a really hard song to do live because it's a, got a very soft melodic vocal, and uh, when we tried to play it with a band, we couldn't. Couldn't do it because I couldn't get my voice to sing above the the sound of the drums and everything. So there's just something very. It's like a perfect studio song, and um, there was no, not, not really any ego in the song as well. Whereas before, you know, being a sort of live sil- about, band about performance, there was always lots of hups and yeahs and let's go baby and lots of silly stuff, it, and which kind of carried from the live performance into the recordings. Anyway, about uh, a month or two ago. Dave sent me the, I, I chased him and he sent it through and I played it. And I was like, wow, it is as good as I remember. I absolutely loved it. And then and then he sent all the other recordings we'd done. And another recording, another recording, we had about um, 24 songs. And I stayed up all night listening to them. And I was like, oh, my God, that song's all right as well. And that song was all right. Was like, oh, that was good. And I was just listening to it like a, uh, in totally different ears. It was like really weird. I mean some of the quality wasn't very good and it was allowing, but all the things that I'd sort of sweated over um or thought was rubbish so I now listened to, you know, with totally different ears. Um, and, and I kind of no crit, no critical faculties, I just enjoyed it all. And one thing led to another, he swapped emails, and I was like, you know what, we should uh whittle the, get get the best songs down. And we whittled it down to about 12 songs, and then Dave sent through an idea for an album cover. And I said, well, I could speak to In Grooves about getting some... And uh, in the space of a really enjoyable four weeks, we've actually put a little album together of these, the best 12 songs, when we sequenced it and now we're getting it mastered. And it's the, it's the oddest little journey that we're actually putting it out, just for our own, you know, of course we're secretly thinking one of them is going to go viral. And then you <laughs> got in touch saying, hey, have you got a song that you uh, want to talk about on our podcast? I'm going, oh, my God, it's starting.
1: So, so what are the pointy what are the pointy birds uh, mutated into? What was the what was the band called at this point? Well, this
2: band became Big Slice. So, I've got I've weirdly got these two kind of revisited. I think it's I turned fifty last year, and I've kind of revisited my youth, as you do. And so, two things have happened. With the, the Pointy Birds, I've I've written up as a book, and our, and the Pointy Birds' claim to fame was our, our manage, We were the only band that uh, didn't make it, but our manager did. Our manager being. Was Ricky Gervais, and before he was famous, so I'm shamelessly trying to, um you know, cash in on his success by writing this memoir. All as about you Paul should. Perry. Sorry, as you should. Yeah, yeah. So I've, I've just finished that, and then, you know, part of the idea was to put out those those songs as well. And in, in the subsequent in the intervening years, I've promoted bands and got a label, so we've got the infrastructure to do it now. This is a really long must be the
3: <laughs>
2: quite a long way around of doing it, like you record songs, then you spend 20 years setting up the label and then you release yourself at the end of it. But, um, yeah, so I've done that for the Point of Birds and then the big slice, we're actually going to reissue the songs. Yeah, that's really just for, because pers- literally they were like um, on tapes and the tapes are kind of disintegrating. So um, it seemed like, well, let's get them uh, digitized. And then you think, well, once you got them digitized, it's easy to put them on Spotify. You know, back then it was, that was like, my God, that just to get them on a CD would have been uh, amazing. I mean, we didn't, we never got anything released. We, No one bought our records. Hardly anyone came to our gigs. We were totally, you know, just to have got a song on a CD would have been a huge um, achievement. So this is, yeah, it's a nice way to sort of, square the circle or whatever you call it.
1: <laughs> so uh, Andy when when you sat there listening to all those songs that evening and um sort of reliving the moment did it take you back to the to that point sort of beginning point of your journey and kind of get you start imagining what if the kind of what if questions what if things had worked out differently?
2: Um a little bit. I think um well, well, you know, I'm sort of quite deluded. I'm still on that journey a bit. You see, so it's it's not too late, yeah. you know. So, what's happened is I've not got that kind of oh, if only. I'm going like, oh, right now, now, now the time's come. <laughs> so um, yeah, there's no bittersweet. I just think those. I think I what I've realised is there's songs and stories. I just love them. So it's really about whether those. Songs ever see the light of day, and they effectively are. Just you put them on Spotify; that's you're already there. You've done it, so they they are seeing the light of day. And then, really, it's the second half of it is then how much time and energy you put into pushing those songs to playlists or sending them out to films, and have you got the time and energy to do that? So there's, I'm not that bothered about that side of it because there's the sort of, you know, the the making of the music, and then you get the the making trying to make it, you know, that kind of line between, you know, the creation and then the promotion. And um, I just love that creative side of things. I think that promoting and self-promoting is really hard work. And um, a lot of bands, that's where they fall down. You know, it's really fun writing a song or writing a story. So I've just got to point out that they, I, the thought of promoting it, I'm not really that bothered, bothered so much by that, but, yeah. So the if only thing doesn't really it's it doesn't really apply if that makes sense.
1: It makes great sense, and I'm really glad to hear that. That sounds like yeah, it sounds lovely to be in that moment with taking this forward at this time.
0: Yeah, going back to going back to the sort of earlier days with the with the pointy birds, sort of pre pre big slice. How did how did you? kind of find your way into make music making and 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 songwriting
2: was your brother in the pointy birds as well well this is the moment to advertise the book which you can read all about that (laughs) He tells the story what happened was i just had a kind of i think from childhood i just went oh um i remember you know you'd watch rick Mail, i think in the young ones and then life of brian and steve martin and then top of the pops and just all those kind of amazing Spinal Tap music and comedy and just going, wow, that looks just, what a fun job. How, how have those people done that with their life? How have they managed to like make funny films or jump around the top of the pop studio? Just mind-blowing. And so I, I scraped in to do um, a politics degree at City of London Poly. And, but I had one thing on my mind was to uh, form a band because that seemed like the easiest way in. And I couldn't. I could strum a few chords. I so thought you need you need three chords. I couldn't really sing, but I had enough of um willing to jump around um on stage and do all that stuff. And uh, and I spotted this guy called Marcus. And um, unbeknownst to him, I sort of lured him in. Uh, I said, "Do you play any instruments?" He didn't, and so I sort of got my bass guitar. But a big influence prior to that was my younger brother and his mate Josh were in a band at school called You Can Do It, Duffy Moon. And they were brilliant. They were just like, I, used, I was their biggest fan. And mm-hmm. they just do covers. And I was just like, my, it's just the, unbelievable. I was the older brother and I'd talk, gone off and I came back, you know, back from my um, uh, holiday and they were like this school band. And they're like, you know, girls screaming. And I was like, what? So I had this kind of idea I would get when Dave and Josh were going off to their own university, the, the plan was, we'd draft them in as soon as possible and they'd fit the rest of the band. So Marcus and me and various others, uh, really embryonic start, the Pointy Birds, we were just like this awful, you know, we were a very, very silly band writing silly songs and we had a a guy that broke bricks with his head while we played. And <laughs> exploded. I mean, we really were. I and mean, People would piss themselves when that, but we never got people saying, oh, you're really good musically. It was always like, oh, you're really funny. or And um but I, I had this secret, no, we've got to get really good as well as being funny. And slowly, you know, the silly songs got replaced and we've got Dave and Josh drafted them in. And we slowly, slowly got better. And then we did this this demo. And again, really, I'd love it to be this demo, but we did um, three songs. We sent it out and we got a little bit of interest um, saying, oh, that's not a bad demo. And then we did the second demo and that's when Ricky got in touch and around that time, Suede were kind of... Um, uh, they were kind of... They hadn't quite broken through, but we knew people that knew them. And what happened was our demo got into the hands of Suede's management. And we'd really... Uh, with Dave, the help of Dave and Josh, and their amazing guitar playing, and Dave's ability to write songs, and my and, and we just wrote, had this really good demo. And then Ricky, who was the... Um, uh, the ens manager at Yulu heard the demo and he got in touch. I was working in a record store at the time and said, do, uh, do you need a manager? So I went to meet him and that was it. And our big excitement was, well, Ricky managed this band, Suede. And around the same time, Suede had uh, got a front cover on the Melody Maker, as the best new band. So we just thought, well, it's happened to them. We've got Swade, it's going to happen to us. And we got propelled into this sort of, it was really exciting. It was sort of like, going to backstage parties with suede and we just thought we're next we're, we're next and we got we got this really good drummer um and but and Ricky was on, yeah so that was our our journey um yeah when he, when
0: when he, he uh, when Ricky took on the management of the band yeah. how uh, what was he doing was did he know what he was doing did uh, what did he
2: do for you well, he got us straight in the studio, and because um, we didn't know whether he knew what he was doing, mm. I mean, because we'd never had a manager. we didn't know what the relationship was. And he was, you know, he liked joking around, and there was a bit of that kind of. Um, the rest of the band maybe were had more questions than I did, but I quite liked his energy. And but when I once got in the studio, I remember we recorded this song, and I I was really struggling to do the vocals, and he jumped in on vocals and. Had ideas for backing vocals, and I've got that's another tape that we could have done where I think he would probably get his lawyers out if he heard. <laughs> oh, yes, please, <laughs> let's do that. <laughs> but it's such an awful recording. I mean, I, I, I if someone thinks it, it's so bad, I mean, it really is. That's another episode, really. That's like the demo you don't want anyone to hear. <laughs>
1: So we've had a, we've had a chance to read those first three chapters of the of the memoir and in the and a yeah. fantastic read it is as well. Um, um it's very much, you know, lots of narrative in there and so how fully formed was was Ricky at this stage because you you can hear David Brent in the background there. So
2: what's yeah, the character like? Well he was probably halfway in between. I think the difference between uh, Ricky and Dave Brent is that uh uh you know ricky's self-aware and, and and dave brent isn't so i think he was and obviously he was at that time that character was gestating he was in it was based on a lot of his time at yulu and he had lots of characters he was um working on at the time and uh and then he went to xfm short just uh, shortly after that and then there was various um so at the time i just thought oh yeah he's you know um he's managing us maybe do- hasn't quite got the connections and a few other managers got in touch that were more connected. So we were slightly like thinking, Oh, maybe Ricky hasn't quite, you know, this guy, Ricky's a nice guy, but he's never going to make, he's he hasn't got what it takes. He hasn't got the contacts. So there's this sort of irony that we were, you know, itching to go with this other guy who, you know, um, but you know, the, the rest is history, obviously. Uh, the, um, ricky did end up knowing what he was doing but he was a sort of a funny character just big big laughs all the time
1: and are you um are you playing at the pointy birds out playing live at this at this time are you doing a lot of shows
2: yeah we were doing yeah we did do uh, looking back that was the other thing where we got to sort of um write this thing up it was amazing how productive we were i mean it seemed to be a gig every week i think it's that sort of heyday of um pre Britpop pop camden you know where you had the four or five venues that really were working together and it and it was a real kind of can you get a gig there and if you did you had to wait two three weeks either side of the gig and everyone everyone worked towards that gig being successful so invariably the nights they were always busy and um before that kind of where everything became a venue and it got a bit diluted but i think um Yeah, looking back, and and, yeah, it was just um, we did all the white horsing in um, West Hampstead through to the Underworld and the Dublin Castle and the Falcon and the Bull and Gates and all those wonderful venues, the borderline. But the... well, when we thought we were ready to go, we kept supporting this band Magic. We kept, we kept badgering. Can we get the suede support now? Can we, when are we going to get our deal with Nude? When, when's that, and, but we kept being asked to, to support this band called Magic from New Zealand, and they didn't really have a following. But the idea was that we would really get tight, live. but we kept, well, who are we playing next? And they said, oh, we're going to support Magic again. with <laughs> <laughs> Ricky said, we can, you're going to support the Passchendaels. And we're like, well, who's that? And it, it was like, well, that, that was Ricky's band. And we, uh, um, <laughs> Ricky's band at the underworld, which was a bit like, do we you know, it wasn't quite uh, what we had our, in mind.
0: Did the ba- did the band play outside of London as well?
2: No, no, we didn't. We, we just stayed in Camden, and um, I think we ventured to Soho at one point for the board line. I'm just trying, I don't think we ever play. Oh, yeah, no, no, we did. We, Marcus, the mum, Marcus's mum got us some gigs in Leicester and Coventry but the gig in Leicester was um a massive venue you know it was about I think about 10,000 capacity and we were the only people playing so they had to seal off I mean it was the most ridiculous thing it was like we played in a great big arena to about 4 <laughs> <more> people <laughs> It's all in the book. You can read all about it.
1: <laughs> and how how long does this take place over, Andy? So this when you, you, you feel like you're on the cusp of breaking through and and achieving the success, how long does that take?
2: Well, the, the, the bit where Rick comes in, is probably a six-month period, really, where we really go. We're ready and we go for it. And that's, that's the point of um, him managing us and us going for it. I think we had about six months where... it it didn't happen but there's also the build up right from watching top of the pops up to that moment is a a kind of seven years or something so you know it's that messy thing of uh it takes there's a good quote like it took him 17 years to be an overnight sensation he said but it it could take 17 years to be an overnight failure too (laughs) (laughs) so we were like that that was our sort of thing you know you put a lot of the, the amount of hours that go into this sort of thing, as well, you know, it's not just while you're rehearsing; it's all the time, isn't it? Thinking and working songs out, and working the next move, and it, it really is all consuming. It's a total passion, um, you know. Yeah. Were you very patient with it as well? Was I? Well, yeah.
0: I, um... six months is a is a is a relatively small amount of time, isn't it? I mean, if you're what you're gigging and and trying to build this following and, and create this this next thing to happen for yourselves but were you being patient at the same time and thinking i'll just we'll just keep going we'll just keep going or were you champing it it a bit
2: it's slightly imploded i think it we'd taken this this band as far as we could have got in fact some would say especially josh who was reluctantly put on keyboards and didn't want to be in the band and thought he was continually surprised we kept we even got i think what happened was eventually we ricky rang one day said you're in the nme we got a live review and I was like, oh my God. I was, and I was working, a lot of the action in the book is I'm working in a record shop and I'm sort of, because all I had to do all day was file vinyl. So I was doing it literally from nine to five all day. And I was just living in my head. And uh, so the idea of being in the enemy was absolutely mind blowing. And um, really, that's what we wanted to do. You'd be on the cover of the enemy, we'd read it religiously. And then suddenly, we, Ricky ran the shop and said, You're in the enemy next week. Following this gig we'd done at the Falcon, supported sporting band called Rumble Strips. And, you know, hardly anyone was there. And um, oh my, I mean, but I get goosebumps thinking about it. And we just assumed it was going to be like, ah, oh, last, we'll probably be on the cover, best new band in Britain. But when they uh, said, oh my God, it was so bad, the review. It was like this kind of uh, seriously overacting singer and bland and inoffensive. It was just a total. Terrible review, and I remember thinking, "Oh my god, it's just like the ram- ramifications that people, everyone you know, is reading it." But still, I'm kept going, you know. But I think the band had probably, it, yeah, yeah. We we really took it, and I think Rick, what Ricky liked was the humor of it. I think our, our endeavor, the fact that we were just n- nothing would knock us back, and we had these songs we were trying to, you know. They were songs that were born out of a kind of silliness, but then we were also trying to be serious. So we we hadn't quite worked out what we were doing. And I thought I could just carry the whole thing by, you know, telling silly jokes in between songs. And you know, we were we were very good.
3: <laughs>
1: by by this point, did you had you started <laughs> to get to know some of the bands that had made it that had got onto the, you know, people like Suede and that?
2: Yeah, well, we I was sort, they were all around all the time. I, I remember see, we we go and meet Ricky for a meeting at Yulu and because he was running Yulu, there was loads of great bands coming through. So i am bit been there the night Radiohead were playing and the night Pulp were there, but I was always like really dismissive thought, I mean, I, I ended up loving all those bands. I mean, they're just amazing. But at the time, you know, having three or four pints inside me going, oh God, rubbish. I mean, oh, with Cocker, what a stupid name. And he's never, I'm much better than him and seeing, you know, Radiohead, I just thought would, just the most pedestrian <laughs> band. that had no idea. <laughs> so I, I've sort of played that up a bit. I'm the Undiscovered Genius. All these uh, also-rans. And at Blur, especially, Damon Albarn, I just thought, oh, my God. Uh, I remember being, we did have a gig at the Falcon supporting Echo Belly, and we kept supporting Echo Belly, and he turned up at a gig. And I'd seen Blur support Suede, and it was a gig where Blur totally fell apart they were drunk on stage and swayed were just coming up and it felt like it was the end of blur and then about a year later they reappeared on the scene and and, and damon was in his sort of mod gear and and uh, you know it's just prior to modern life is rubbish but he'd reinvented himself and he turned up at this uh, at one of our gigs at the falcon i remember thinking oh that is that look is never what well, how desperate can you get you know and that whole talk about Two fingers up to American bands, and I thought, yeah, you're, that's a really last desperate roll of the dice there. You know, you were saying that the band had started
0: to impl- was starting to implode. How did it come to an end for the for the Pointy Birds, and and how were you when 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 that happened?
2: Well, I was. I think the, when I really knew it was when Marcus had his ponytail cut off. That was the final. Yeah. Like, oh no! I, that was when it's serious, you know. And also, we ha- we went through loads of different drummers. And our really good drummer. We we had this drummer that was a really nice guy, and he lived next door. And his girlfriend was a stylist, and he had a fan and a printer for flyers. And he was just such a nice guy. He even contribute to the rehearsal. But the one thing he lacked was sort of any sense of rhythm, and uh, <laughs> it was for a drummer. And I sort of thought we we had to have this guy in the band because he was just so convenient. But so for a part of the point first journey we had this guy and also he kept telling me how his girlfriend said oh you've really turned his life around he's so happy to be in the band so there was a kind of we couldn't just thought oh no he can't (laughs) get rid of him but then we this guy at our rehearsal studio guy called andy was just the most amazing drummer and it suddenly dawned on me why don't we get andy in to play drums i you know i said to him you do you fancy being in the band he'd sort of take our money when we went to rehearse and um he said, yeah, yeah, my, my hero is Stuart Copeland. and all, He named all these things, and he played like Stuart Copeland. He was like that good. So when he joined the band, we did suddenly become really quite, very tight, and Josh was graduating from university, and he was like the real musician of the band. So we, there was a period where we we got quite good, but I just don't think the songs were that strong enough. And then Andy, the really good drummer, uh, suddenly announced he would, he'd met someone who was going to live abroad, and that was the start of it. Ricky, by that point, was slightly... Uh, moving on to doing other things. He got us to play the Yulu Summer Ball. And um we were really excited and and there was a special guest headliner which we thought was Suede, you know, at last we can play Suede. When we got to Soundcheck, it was like a, a Closet Queen, this Queen covers band that Ricky was managing. And then there was also a Bouncy Castle. We, and we we're in the Bouncy Castle and Closet Queen. It was our like a puppet show moment. Well, and I think everyone just started feeling a bit. And also, we'd waited two years for Josh to graduate, and it was like one of those th- things, you know, when you wait and wait, and then he eventually arrived. As soon as he arrived, it, we we split up, and and it was like, you know, but it felt the nice thing about it was it felt really. We did a last gig at the the dome in Tufnell Park, and we had about eight people come to see us. The two support bands had cancelled. The promoter has given me daggers. There was only eight people there. And we played. Ricky didn't make it. There was our eight, the three guys that worked in the record shop and uh, you know Mark's girlfriend. And it was like someone's mum. And we played this really low, And we didn't have a drummer, but Jeff, the chef, my mate who drove the van, did bongos instead. <laughs> and we played these songs. And we, it was like putting them to rest. It was like playing our respects. And as each song finished, it was like we were putting them out of their misery and then we went and we got a taxi into camden and the band the four of us so it's my brother and me marcus my college friend and josh and with we went and got these amazing chips uh, on pratt street in camden and sat around a table and it felt like it was a sort of a sense of liberation in in, in many respects like oh i think mean, josh was relieved thank god that's over with and um and I but I knew we were moving to Camden then because we lived, we had a flat in Golders Green. So the idea was, well, that was uh that was our apprenticeship. I, I was very much right we'll get another band going, which is what we then did with this, this Big Slice. And what happened with Big Slice very briefly was that the the uh guy, the, the rough trade rep that used to come into um select a Disc um was a guitarist, he joined the band, we got this drummer in. And and Sean's mate Phil joined, he played the Moog. there was always a bit of burning tension how much moog to put over every song. My brother hated it, but Phil would put moog <laughs> over everything. And uh indiscriminately, you know, these really well-crafted songs, and we like this hoover going on. <laughs> occasionally it worked really well, especially live. This moog would come on. And we always thought basically turn Phil down whenever we could. And then one day, Phil Said that oh, I've got my side project. I'm doing a gig at the Dublin Castle. If you were going to come along, so we went along to give a bit of moral sp- support. And assuming it'd be him on his own with his moog, just playing his moog, but it was um, his band with the Low Fidelity All Stars, and uh, mm. he got his mate, ah, okay, his mate down from Leeds, the rec train, and he got another guy in on drums, and it was like an absolute masterclass. It was like, oh my god, it was like the most amazing. And but at the end of their half an hour set. A skint records had signed them sony had offering them a massive and then we went oh okay meanwhile ricky was starting to we started thinking what are we doing wrong here we're kind of like always backing the wrong horse but we we got quite good at what we're doing but it just felt like maybe it's not to be you know other people and by that time it was 96 97 brit pop had really exploded so all those bands that we'd seen in the early days were now on top of the pops and we were still really playing to just a, a small handful of people. But yet the songs have gotten much, but we're taking them far more seriously. And um, we really were, especially Dave and me, were as two brothers, we were kind of, you know, and even when Oasis appeared on the scene, I was like convinced. Oh, yeah, a band from up north, two brothers. We're a band from down south, two brothers. And let the battle <laughs> commence. <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> did, it just didn't, battle didn't commence, you know. <laughs> so we, um, yeah, it was just the sort of it's quite. But looking back, it's just very sweet. It's like it's what we did, and it's like um, the energy in it all as well is quite like um, and just try trying, trying to do it, you know, just giving it a go, and it's kind of fun. That that period, isn't it? You know, when you're a bit old, you look back, and it's all innocent. You know, at the time, you might like fretting over stuff, but it's like,
0: you yeah. know. It's a rich set of experiences wow. like you said everything that's involved it is a, a full-time occupation yeah. working you know right not just the playing not just the writing and the rehearsing yeah. it's all that time in your own head yeah. thinking what's what do i do what's coming next what do i want to say all of that enthusiasm and and that youthful enthusiasm yeah. as well and um it's actually you know it's kind of uh, a romantic uh idea being in London and playing in, in, in Camden at that pit pe- at that period of time as Britpops just about to, to, to start yeah. and kick off and you, you're sort of around all of that stuff. That's a, those a that's a wonderful set of experiences to have. And, uh, Despite it not going the way that you wanted it to go, well, in yet. a way, we
2: feel like we were like, it still happened. In the strangest feeling, it felt like it really, I mean, in a way, uh, we have sort of dined out on, oh, yeah, our manager was Ricky Gervais and all that. But really, actually, what was, we were, we were right there doing it. And at the time, you just, you're kind of a bit jealous, oh, they're making it and we were not getting anywhere. But when we all get together now, the pointy birds, we all get misty eyed, you know, we're all old and grey and sort of. But you know, I think most, but anyone that's been a band, they look back and and I've still got the itch to do. I mean, I don't really, I've never really had the itch to go up and play, um, strangely. But I know the rest of them do. I, I'm much, I, I love the kind of writing side of it and recording. I haven't really, um, but also I think maybe because I then turned into a music promoter, so I just for the last twenty five years have been, I've put on so many gigs. It's like a busman's holiday to me a bit, maybe. And that's why it's quite. It's been quite nice to revisit the creation, creative side of it because I've been promoting things for so long. And like you say, like a, for a band, it is almost making it is like rocket science because nowadays you've not. It's not just your performance on stage or in the studio; it's your performance on social media. That is, as if not anything, that's like the biggest thing now. How you you know interact with your direct with your fans. I mean, it's a it's a whole other ball game. And in fact, the the, the music's almost been taken care of elsewhere, you know, especially that pop level. You've got your writer teams and the artist is there performing. It's like the performer. They've kind of split it quite naturally, maybe. Um, but when you're a band and you're writing everything and then you've got to get the deal, I mean, I just think we weren't, I, I'm still to this day, and maybe in the book, is trying to figure it out, like why, what we did wrong. And there's so many factors what we did wrong you know were we ready and did we want it enough or did we want it too much or were we too needy did we have a slight fear of failure or fear of success there's all these different levels or, or it, there's this comes down to would you sell your grand down the river for a hit that's the big thing would you do that and if you wouldn't maybe you've not got what it takes because you've really got to. but you know there's one thing wanting it but do you really want it that point where you're willing to just sacrifice everything and i think maybe we you know, I had a happy childhood and I, I had um, having a nice life and I'm quite lazy and I like going for a pint and maybe the reality of it, you know, I did a bit of tour managing for four days for the tinder sticks. Oh, it was the worst four days of my life. I couldn't didn't get any sleep. and Just not for me, really. I just, I'd be, I would have lasted.
3: You know, it's A
0: probably- tour manager is horrible, right. isn't it? Why would you do that?
2: Worst? God. I found, it's the only time I've ever fallen fallen asleep, and I I was aware I was falling asleep as I was falling asleep because I was so tired. I went, oh, I'm falling asleep. and I won't I... like <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> So Andy, so, so the, the point the band finally finishes, and you're not feeling sad. You're feeling quite okay about the whole experience. Yeah. And what where do you go from where do you go next from there? What what happens next for you on your
2: journey? What do you mean when the pointy birds fit up or the big slice?
1: When the when big slice finishes.
2: Oh, yeah, so what happened? I suppose, yeah, lo fives went off. And I thought, um, I think actually at that point I was ready to maybe stop. And I thought maybe, you know, you cut, maybe the fun had gone out of it a bit because I think that's the main, main ingredient you need. Like, if you're going to bother doing it, it's got to be fun. And I think I was maybe not very I, – I, I was really getting into the songwriting side of it. But the rest of it, having a band and then having to tell people what to do and um, – Yeah, I just suddenly, and I think maybe I had a bit of an itch to then do a bit of writing maybe more, maybe on that. Because halfway through The Pointy Birds, I also had a bit of Spell doing comedy and stuff like that. And I think my real love was then uh, going full circle, back round to all this kind of when you see a film like with Nell and I. And that was the stuff I I was probably getting more inspired by. And also I started putting on gigs at the Camden Falcon, so... They, that became my job a bit. I had a, I had another job, but I was, and I found I was quite good at putting on gigs. You know, I, I just, so I worked to record. I worked at a record shop and I put an advert up saying, "Does anyone want to gig?" And it was like targeting this demographic directly, and I just got loads of demos coming in, and then it was like right, pick the demos you like, put them on the Camden Falcon, and over time, you know, it sort of started building, and building, and um, so I suddenly got sort of taken up with that becoming and then there was a sort of fun of i met simon at fierce panda and we started the gigs start getting quite buzzy and you know you suddenly get a bit of um that that kind of took over a bit actually and i sort of made the leap from being in a band to you know i i used to hate music promoters and all that they just seem like who are these people they're just horrible you know sit in a hallway at the falcon and tell bands they can't play and i hated them and um and then I just turned into one, you know. And I suddenly, but then you know, you'd have ANR man men ring you up, take you for lunch to find out who. Because back then, of course, the there's no internet, and the music promoter is a kind of gatekeeper for demos. So the, you know, I suddenly got taken for lunch by these ANR people, saying you know who's good, who do you think? And you could sort of sell a band, and and they wouldn't be allowed to hear them; they'd have to come to the gig to um, have to come to the gig to see them. So there was that is that sort of. Um, uh, the gig was the big reveal then, you know. So that was great. I mean, and uh, yeah, I, I sort of left being in a band behind. I probably thought, well, that's that's what I did then. But I definitely had the itch to do something creative, and it's taken years to kind of, you know, dab. I've been dabbling at it ages, but nothing quite was working. And then really the, the idea of the the memoir on that uh, with Ricky Gervais and pre-Britpop and Suede and Blade just seemed like the perfect thing to... Um, Right up and it was right time to do it And um, who knows I might get the same eight people reading it <laughs> <laughs> in fact I sent it I sent it to um, the guys I used to work in the shop with and I, they, they, they feature quite heavily in it as these kind of real hard task masters which they were thinking god I hope they don't mind and they loved it so um, I'm, I'm pl- that's one hurdle jumped oh that's great when uh when you're putting the shows on and you're kind of
0: starting to work with these young bands having not very you know long prior to that happening you you'd been you'd been in that situation yourself yeah. had you let go of it enough to feel like you were playing a different role now or was there still that because i mean you you're still very you're still very young and yeah. you still you've put all this energy into being in a band yourself to then be on the other side of it and helping these other bands how was that well
2: i t- i just, could just totally relate to a position. And I, I knew all the things not to do i was like yeah don't do it like that i mean i couldn't really say what you didn't need to do but i could just feel and then, then those bands i just really liked it was like well i can i just really like it it was that it's just basic you know and um so yeah i can yeah do a gig or maybe then then it was like oh what could Got to know distributors and then worked out how it all worked. Just think for young bands, you realise you just haven't a clue how it works. I remember being, when we were in the point, yeah, I just no idea what what is the relate, what does the manager meant to do, what was Ricky meant to do, or, and then you get the other side and you start learning how it all works, and then you realise how they really are very, and then probably the bands that that's the thing I think for a lot of bands if they don't find out about that side of it they can get it what the hard thing is is it's trying to explain it all but but gain their trust as well because there's so much to take on uh but you don't want to be spending all your time going well no you don't want to do that because of this this you need you need them to trust you so it's a quite hard balancing act you've got to not um um and, and also if you're going to put your time into work with the band you you want them to you don't want to then put loads of time, and then someone nicks them off you because that can happen as well. So you've got to come somehow build that trust really quickly. Not waste too much time uh, explaining stuff. But I think in those early days, because I was in a band and I was learning myself, you know, I just went on the journey with them. And I, I and I met this actually what happened. I met this guy Pete, our lawyer Pete, who, to this day, and he was just like this oracle of knowledge. And he liked a beer and he loved going to gigs. And I really hit it off with him. So. Any difficult questions I could just ask Pete, and um, he'd start coming to meetings. And then we just, yeah, and also Simon at Fierce Panda. Um, he was like this kind of one man sort of release machine, and i do all the gigs with him. So it we just went on this kind of journey. Whereas, and it was all what I liked about it, it was all make it up as you go along, and um, you just slowly, slowly learning as you go. And I think those, you, yeah, you. I I now know I, when we get young people into work. Work for me, doing say a release. I don't really want to go to a band meeting and talk with about. Oh, I don't really want want to do. But it's it's like uh, the younger guys, they love all that stuff, you know, and they're really good at it. And you need that energy and that kind of enthusiasm and slight naivety to go for it. Because if once you know how it all works, you can get a bit jaded, you know. Like you don't want to be sitting there going, "Well, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. You don't want to do that. No, no, no." because you don't want to lower the morale.
1: It sounds like you had an awful lot of generosity when you were working as a promoter, Andy. Did, did you sort of naturally find yourself nurturing, taking people under your wing, giving them your your
2: sort of advice? Well, a bit. There was a few. I mean, the, the, there was a handful. What happened? There was this um, A tape came in from the clientele very early on, and I. that was another reason why I decided to hang up my guitar because I thought these six songs were so beautiful and the melodies were so effortless and the lyric, and I just thought, bloody hell, oh, that's so good. And could I ever do that? And I, and then, and then I, there'd be, um, and then it was tiny two came along, and these three girls who, it was like ABBA meets Nirvana. And I was like, wow, that is, it's like the wedding present meets the sugar cubes. It's three girls and they just made this huge noise, but the big, big melodies and, and, and then Ultrasound came along, and it was like, oh, my God. And it, it, band mm. after band after band. And there's this band, I don't you've heard them, they call called Flotation Toy Warning. They, <laughs> they, they, were bad. <laughs> they were bad. You know, just beautiful melodies and uh, arrangements. And, like, with, with Flotation, like it, every song had about nine beautiful songs in the one song, and Paul's voice. You know, so I just found myself becoming a real fan of these, this music, and also caught in awe of it. So I, I think I just was like that, right, I want to to help that out and take but we didn't have those sort of ability to, to you know, have a, we didn't have any gold discs on our walls. We hadn't had any number one hits. So we were quite good at getting it from that kind of grassroots level up to that next bit.
0: So I suppose that the bit's the bit that's missing there for me is the move from promoting to to setting up the label. It was it was working with having tapes coming in from bands yeah. who were looking for for shows and you thinking this is just too good i need to i need to be part of
2: this yeah i think the way the label f- happened was because um working with doing all the gigs with fierce panda then meeting the setup, and then realized oh it's not actually that difficult you just have a distributor who's, who take care of all the basic the hard bit you know of actually doing the record so i just think well how does that work and they just did all that and then you have they they would then have a production deal with a company that did all the manufacturing so you really didn't need to do any of that it was really more about finding the bands, and i would more gone into it more from a management uh, initially because I thought with Tiny Two when I saw them, I thought good I had a sound check. they were so good and it was it sort of occurred to me wow i I could manage them, and I started managing them, and then we got them a deal with fierce panda, and it was the what happened that was the worst moment of my life turned into the the best moment in life was that I'd sent Tiny Two demo to this guy, Simon Williams at the NME who ran Fierce Panda. I didn't know Simon at this point. And I said, I thought you might like this. It's Wedding Present meets the Cubes. They play Saturday nice at the Camden Falcon. I hope you could be there, and, you know, in this kind of little letter. And then I followed the, uh, the letter up a few days later and rang the NME. I was really nervous, you know, like the NME, my God. And he answered the phone and he said, hello. And I remember going, oh, yeah, yeah, I managed this band, Tiny Tune. He goes, yep, yep, I love it. I'll be there. I was like, oh, my God. So I was it's about like maybe like a football manager going into like you you're on the other side, it's was like wow, wow. And uh, Fierce Panda at that point were doing every band they signed got a big deal. So it's like, oh my god, they're coming to the gig. And I uh, told the band they're really excited, oh, yeah, I've got Fierce Panda coming down, and then there's buzz Fierce Panda come down with telling everyone out more people. And Saturday night, um, they were going to go on at about 8.15. And the place was packed and they they went on and halfway through the first song, Ellen's guitar sort of broke. The strings went and she she sort of froze and kept playing through the song. And I thought, oh shit, we didn't bring a spare guitar. It was like, damn, you know, and we've got strings. So I thought I've got an idea. William, who was the drummer of Big Slice, who lived on Camden Road, I just thought, right, I'm going to do it. And she finished the song and I said, Ellen, pass me a guitar. She passed the guitar, and I ran out of the venue with the guitar and ran down Royal College Street onto Camden Road to William's house because I thought he'd have strings or at least a spare guitar. And I rang the doorbell, and I rang the doorbell, and he wasn't in. And I I ran back with the broken guitar, and then I stopped in the middle of the road, and I did one of those, ah, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? It's so terrible. And by the time I got back to the venue there's all these people outside going, where's Andy gone? Where's Andy gone? Where's our guitar? The whole gig would waited there. And Ellen was on the mic going, where's my guitar? And I brought it in with this round of applause. And people go, "Ah, oh, He's done a fix. And I passed this same broken guitar back to Ellen. And she <laughs> looked at me like, you know, what on earth have you done? And she they came on the gigs. I think she started crying through one side. It was just so disastrous. And I thought, well, that's the end of my career as a manager then. And I was at the bar, and Simon came up to me and he said, "That was absolutely amazing. Do they want to do a single on Fierce Panda?" So oh, I, come on! I went, "Oh my god!" I think I hugged him, gave him a kiss. And I said, "When I saw the bats, I was so sorry, but you've got a deal." And then that was it. That we went on this amazing journey. They they did two singles, and we, they were played on Peel and. It was like for me um, as exciting as if it was my own music because I'd never had a song played on the radio, and I remember being uh, at the forum and hearing John Peel DJ play Tiny Two. If I was a boy, and it was like with the band, and it was just amazing to hear it on the radio. You know, it sounded different, sounded like, wow. and you know, so and then the clientele was more a management, and we did you we were trying to get them a deal. And we thought, well, if you can't get a deal, we'll put a single out ourselves. We'll do it. And we did a seven inch single of the clientele on pointy records. And um, it did quite well. It got an enemy review and it was like that. And then another label said, can we do a seven inch? And then another label said, can we do a seven inch? And on the fourth seven inch, we didn't realize we were slowly building up this really kind of collectible seven inch singles for the clientele, which are now they are, if you they're really hard to get a hold of. But on the fourth one, Um, It got single of the week in time out New York. And that was followed up by this Washington Post, like this is the new Bell and Sebastian. Then the phone started ringing saying, do they want to tour America? So that was a sudden, like we were on a flight to Boston and we arrived, Clinton were on the radio, shows were sold out in Philadelphia and Washington DC and New York and that, and then Merge signed them. So we, and then Chrysalis signed their publishing. So I then wore that publishing hat. But what we did is we put the, the first album, all collected all those singles together and put them out on pointy records. And it sold really well. So I just thought being a label was really easy. I just thought, oh, you do a few singles and then you tour America and then you
3: other oh, singles <laughs> and the
2: shell shot would go, we need another repress, we need another repress. So we, we, you know, we just, and also back then things did sell quite quick. You know, you'd sell a thousand singles quite quickly and that slowly over the years then became you know if you're selling 50 singles nowadays you're doing quite well. It's
1: uh, it's Suburban Light is a masterful album, is not it? It's a beautiful collection of music. It's
2: wonderful, yeah. It's um it was really a nice way to do it. So slowly we we had labels in Japan and then the labels all around the world releasing these seven inches, and it was all very organic. It wasn't there was no plan to it. And then when we put them together, it's still like, well, that's what we'll do next. It wasn't any master plan. Like that seems an obvious thing to do, collect them together, put them on a CD. And then that came out. And then 10 years later, Pitchfork did their, their best albums of the the noughties or whatever it was. And that, that Suburban Light was in the top. It was like one above Madonna or something. And I can't remember was it was like number, the top 100 albums of the decade. It was like, like 79 or 80, but we were in there, you know.
1: And went back and had a look at that review today, which is a beautiful review. And just saying to Steve that it finishes with this gorgeous line: "says when your parents complained that you didn't live in the real world, this is where you were hiding," which feels totally fits the bill, doesn't
2: it? Well, you know, it's twenty since that tape. We've seen that tape at Selected Disc the I mean, You know, I'm still still working with them, and um, the Alistair's yet to um, write a bad song. You know, it's just. He can't write about it. It's impossible. He's just that musical. And I think that's also the reason I was like, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I love the process of songwriting. I think we could write a all, all good song and all that, but there's some people that are just very, it's, it seems to be effortless. I'm just, no doubt he works really hard at it as well. But um, yeah, it's kind of like where you go, wow. <laughs> that, it's like a really good writer. You know, those writers, I'm, I like stories, you know, saying, I have like, seen. I love stories, but I'm not a writer. And that, and, but then you get those people that are able to just write that, that prose. You know, Oh my God, how do you do that? I could never do that kind of writing, you know. I
1: mean, you've been such a, Andy, you've been such a champion of sort of grassroots music scene, like everything that you've talked about and the way that you discuss things with such a kind of passion and insight and it's uh, it's so impressive how does it feel for you to reflect on everything that you've done in that capacity Andy
2: weirdly I've gone back to the start like I've got this book which I'm now going to try and get out and it's just and you know what's really weird is Brett Anderson bloody Brett Anderson from Suede he got his memoir out all about pre-Britpop and of course it's been a bestseller and it's like history repeats out. Bloody hell, like they, he's gone down. Now I'm following up with my kind of effort. And, you know, I'm, I'm just in the hope Ricky will tweet about it and then it's job done, you know. It, it hits a few million people and sells a few copies. And then, meanwhile, we'll get big, the Big Slice songs out there and um, you never know, do you? And uh, and there's loads of other projects, you know. I, I, I'm still, that's the advantage, I think, of not, having a success is that you haven't yet failed so you you know you can sort of keep going i'm not i'm quite pleased that i it's like this you know because i've still got that kind of oh wow would not it be good to uh there's still plenty of summits to climb whether i'll get there i don't know but
0: one of the pitfalls of living a, a, a creative life is that you can become quite jaded with it as well, and uh, or you. And I'm sure you've seen that with folks that you've that you've worked with, where it just becomes a, a real millstone in the end, and you just and and folks just stop completely because it's too draining, it's too much, is sacrifice too much, or um, so to yeah to to hear you talk about what you do with. it's not even renewed it's just with an ongoing love for being creative and the creativity of others as well I think that's just it's such an impressive and important thing I mean Ben was talking before we started recording we were looking at the the stuff for Fandango School that project I don't don't know if you wanted to say a little bit about that I mean you touched on it slightly earlier but
2: what we've got is this three year from the Arts Council just set up it it's a radio Fandango is what we're setting up so it's like a sort of there is a school element we did do something um last year where we are going to set up the school of fandango and the radio, but it was just a bit too much um what what basically will be is radio fandango becomes this new platform um where and there'll be an educational element to it so all this kind of advice for artists and and in fact i was going to speak to you about it even for your podcast the idea was the radio fandango could be a home for music and comedy and podcasts and a place where people can discover stuff because you know what it's like with podcasts you've got directories and word of mouth so we want to become maybe a bit like american college radio meets 70s pirate radio and uh, it being very much human curation um it's all discovery of new bands um and that kind of little community but the, the the difficulty is it's how ambitious to be with it because you need a lot of money to do it properly so we've got to kind of realize what uh so it's getting good people together and we're just building the platform now and this so it's quite good timing in one way with this whole covid thing but it's a terrible time as well because without live music that's really the um lifeblood of the whole thing without that it, it makes it a bit tricky but you know you, you just have to adapt really
1: one of the things that we've covered in the last with the last couple of interviews with people is, you know, what do you think the long term effects of of COVID on the on the sort of grassroots music scene might be? I've no
2: idea. I suppose the grassroots music scene was in real trouble in the sense that, you know, you you have to run those gigs for free now. In the old days you'd do six pounds to see four bands, say. Or five pounds to see three bands i remember i was putting our prices up <coughs> and someone coming in putting a sign getting robbers and i was thinking well you know you've know, the cinema it's 15 20 quid popcorn 30 blah you got the pub this is six pounds to see three bands that've spent their life writing songs performing for you i mean it's what what it's nothing and like that barely covers even at that point you know and once you throw in that which is going to Wipe out any profit for the promoter, so that gets that point where the problem was in 2012. Boris johnson come back to bloody Boris Johnson—the music and dance license. It was—it was for a good reason. I think it's that kind of musicians' union wanted any venue under 200 capacity to be able to put on gigs without having that license, which was great. Uh, but in London, it just meant everywhere became a venue overnight. Gordon Ramsay was a venue, and then. Then the kind of market dropped out. It was like it was really hard to keep keep you know bands from doing five gigs in a week. Um, which of course understandable they want to play as many gigs, but the audience then thinned out. And um, but the problem then was that to make yourself competitive, competitive, you have to drop the price. And the only reason we've been able to keep going is arts council supporting us. But if you are doing a gig, just purely try and make money on tickets and cover your costs, like I used to in the old days, you know, you it was basically a little cheap date. You know, this is the amount of tickets, and that's the budget. And but now, you if you ticketed a grassroots show, it kills it. You have to make it free, so then therefore you have to have a deal with the land landlord to get some money from behind the bar to cover it, and they'll give you hardly anything. So the bands don't make any; it doesn't cover their costs. The promoter's doing it for nothing. And, uh, and also, because it's free entry, there's an element of it, there's not really, the audience isn't as invested in it. Because they haven't bought a ticket, it's not really their night, they're just wandering. oh, what's this free stuff, look around, might stay, they haven't invested in the night. So the answer really is, I mean, with these, it's like anything, it's that kind of the majors who, who are making more money than ever with streaming, off the, and that kind of, reinvestment in grassroots it's going to need a big load of money but i don't you know whether they they need to they're making so much money do they need to they're not really caring about the short term of festivals because you know it is very very hard i don't know whether covid will shake it up a bit like it has to get worse before it gets better or whether all that will happen is a lot of those venues that may be surplus to requirements die and you end up maybe going full, so this is maybe a slightly more positive take. You end up with only the strongest ones remaining. And the scene goes back to a little bit like it was before. Back in the 90s, Camden had like four venues and that was it. Well, although it won't be Camden now, because but it would be just like London might have four or five venues. And um, they, they strengthen through that kind of, uh, and people start buying tickets because they're invested in seeing it live. It might be something like that. But I haven't a clue,
1: <laughs> Andy. You've had a chance to kind of see, witness the kind of transition of the industry, you know, from major labels into, you know, illegal downloading and then into streaming and stuff. Um, taking a kind of overview of that, what would your advice be for bands starting out now? Are you? Are you would you say DIY is the <laughs> the DIY is the logical route for people to go down?
2: Yeah, if you got to be really. Um, don't have any expectations I suppose just just do it for the love of it and um, the good thing about you know obviously the internet you've got a global audience there that you can if you can put the energy and the time because um, being a band if you're trying to make it as, as the one half of it is writing the music and having that fun learning how to play live but the big factor is a band is a brand and you've got to have that all other side of it your social, put the time in on the socials, really work out what your what is your niche, what you're doing. And and they are really, you know, if you get it right, the you're gonna fly. Because I think people want once, you know, the audience is there. I think it's hard. I've always I don't know if this theory is a load of all rubbish, but I was thought you've got to be ten out of ten or seven out of ten. Because if you're seven out of ten, you're just sort of bland enough to be good enough to cross over or you've got to be that absolutely amazing 10 out of 10 but if you're 8 or 9 out of 10 you're in a dangerous place you can't quite but of course that's a load of rubbish because you know Ed Sheeran is 10 out of 10 to lots of people I give him about a three so I don't know, <laughs> I don't know where. but no even worse I give Ed Sheeran 7 out of 10 he's like 7 out of 10 it's just like this all right bit of a whiny voice, but it's nothing special, is it? And um, (laughs) people, all your Ed Sheeran following, turning off in droves. Yeah, there goes our (laughs) audience. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. I don't know. know. But, you know, if you're really good and you work at it and you, you you know, you can get to a certain way, how far you'll get, it's an unknown, but the main factor is fun. Enjoy it. There's no point otherwise.
0: Andy, thank you so much. Thank you for Pleasant. so much for doing this. It's yeah, been, thanks, Andy. It's been brilliant. And there's there's stuff we haven't touched, we haven't talked about. Golden ears, we haven't talked about your your kids' book, but we can put some uh, links in the in the show notes so people can find your other many other projects.
2: This is what happens when you get to 15 it still hasn't happened. You've just stockpiled all this kind of stuff.
0: What <laughs> to, to do? It all. Can we uh, can we finish the show or Can you introduce the song that people are going to hear now, please?
2: Yeah. Ah, oh, so, so I should go with ropes, shouldn't I? Or should I go with? Benefit office or oh, there's Nostradamus blues. Oh, what should I do? I'll go with ropes. This is ropes by Big Slice.
0: Thank you, Andy. Okay. <laughs>